Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Brendan, CTO of Ramsey Solutions, and they discuss how to have hard conversations at the workplace, the philosophy of Brendan's emotional firing, and the advantage of having a non-existent credit score. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So the uncomfortable conversations topic kind of came up originally as a curriculum. It wasn't really like a stage talk. So I, I used that curriculum to teach like my group of 42 leaders at Ramsey, like how to have uncomfortable conversations with people, right? Because it's a leadership skill that's hard to do and hard to learn. Our live events team, our entree leadership team took notice of some of the internal training I was doing. And they said, oh, hey, this would be great if you did it at one of our events. I ended up taking like this four hour, six part training thing that I developed for my leadership team and condensed it down to like a 45 minute talk. And I've done it a couple of times at our entree leadership events. So it's an interesting thing because there's a, there's a short version of it. And then there's a really long version of it, depending on, you know, what, what you're doing. But I was going to, I was going to suggest if you wanted to focus in on this topic um, there is like a download that we could actually give. Yeah, we can put uh, it in the show notes. Give people. Um, because there's enough, to, uh, there's enough to talk around the topic, but really the piece that people found, find most valuable is like this conversation guide okay. on how to, how to actually construct an uncomfortable conversation. You know, it gives them options. They can check things and circle things and fill in the blanks and it will build an it will, it will build like a, a storyline or a template that you can bring into an uncomfortable conversation with you if you're like really freaking nervous, which most, most leaders are. are. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually think that's kind of what made the, the, the topic popular because it wasn't just this esoteric, you know, philosophical talk on right. the importance of doing uncomfortable conversations. Although that's in there, there's like hard tools to teach you how and, and how to practice doing it. So yeah, the... Um, if we're going to talk about the topic, you know, offering the download would be pretty important because if you, if you try to just verbally talk through the format, it gets, it gets pretty jumbly, pretty, pretty quick. Yeah. You know, I want to know about the day that you decided you needed to make this. The, uh, <laughs> well, okay. So it's, it, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. The day that I decided that I needed to make this was not like one of those really bad situations where I'm in the middle of an uncomfortable conversation and I don't know what to do. It, it, was, it was actually the exact opposite of that. So I was sitting on my, on my couch one night with my wife and she gets a text message. Not unusual for us, we get text messages at night just like everybody else does. But I, I see her look down at her phone and you could kind of feel the air change, change in the room. And I was like, oh, wonder what, what she just got, right? And she kind of paused for a second, looked at me, looked back at her phone, and then just hands me her phone. And there is a text message on her phone from a woman named Anne, and I had just fired Anne's husband that morning. Oh, no. And all the text message says is, hey, right? And then, you know, you get that little animation on your iPhone that 
apparently some brilliant designers and engineers at Apple came up with to like signal to you that somebody is typing a really long message on the other end. Mine is off. Right. Oh, yeah. yours is off. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Yep. And so uh, I'm sitting, my wife and I are both sitting there looking at her phone like in suspense, like, oh my gosh, what message are we about to get from Anne? You know, because there's that fear, like you're about to get your doors blown off because as unfortunate as it is, I had to let her husband go. And the message that I got back, I mean, it's not a direct quote, but it's pretty, these words are kind of seared into my mind, right? She said, our husbands just finished walking an uncomfortable road together. And she said that the outcome was, was tough, but the process was loving and fair. And she said, I hope we can still be friends. And I remember particularly that part that said the process was loving and fair. It just kind of rocked me, you know, because up until that point in my career, I've been doing leadership for about 10 years. Every time I ever did an uncomfortable conversation, it was brutally bad for me. It was brutally bad for the other person. And this was the first time I had walked through something like that. And somebody like in a subtle way almost came back and thanked me. And, you know, Anne's going through this moment where like her family's in total turmoil, right? Her husband just lost her job. It was a bad situation. But she, she like took a moment to acknowledge how he handled the situation and as a leader, I don't think that there's almost, I don't think there's a bigger win than that, right? So that caused me to kind of wake up and realize there was something I did right this time that I've never done before. So I, I kind of walked the situation backward and just started writing down, like, what did I do? What sequence did I do it in? You know, what, what do I want to repeat? And when I got all that stuff down on paper, you know, then I, I was actually amazed by how much information I was able to kind of regurgitate. And then when I started bringing that to other leaders, uh, they started to treat it like gold, you know, cause it, to me, you know, one of the hardest parts about leadership is basically learning how to model for other people, things that were never modeled for you. So for me, in my experience, you know, I, I've, I've worked with lots of great people over time, but I, I come from that generation of technology folks. You know, the, I'm, I'm the first generation of the web. And there were not a lot of people in my experience along the way who were able to give me like really great leadership advice. We were all kind of figuring it out at the same time. So one of the challenges for me being that first generation web guy is now I have hundreds of people who work for me. I've got 40, 40 plus leaders that work for me. And a lot of those folks are a little younger than me, you know, the next generation. So I've had to figure out, like, how do I model for them what has never been modeled for me? And that, that's, a, that's a tall order. It's, you know, it's hard to do. So the, the uncomfortable conversations topic is, is one of the first times I really stepped into that and said, okay, I've, I've identified something here where I've got some success. Let's make sure that I, I get that out for other people to learn too. I want to talk about... I want to give like a specific scenario. Yeah, yeah. That way we can work through it. So okay. the details are going to be in the worksheet, which are going to attach to the conversation. So right. people can walk through the formula. But just conversationally here, one of the toughest conversations anyone has to have as a leader is letting someone go. Right. And so what is like the the high level, like milestones that you think of when you're going through that process? Right. So I, it's funny you bring up that example because that is the most frequent thing that people bring up. And... If you're not careful, and this happened to me when I first started teaching on this topic, and you start giving people tools about how to have uncomfortable conversations, 
wouldn't you know it, the first thing that they do is they're like, oh, great, I finally have the tools to fire this guy or fire this gal, right? Like they, and I figured that out pretty quick when I started teaching this. And I really had to get everybody to pump the brakes and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't give you these tools so you could just start firing people. I'm giving you these tools so you can take 10 steps backward and hopefully avoid ever having to fire someone, right? So I, the way I kind of break it down in my head is there are really five types of uncomfortable conversations, but six things you have to do. And when you're dealing with somebody and you've got some maladaptive behavior going on, you have some unwelcome behavior, the first thing that you got to get, you really have to do that most people don't pause and do is get really, really clear about the problem. Most of the time, when you're sitting down to talk with someone about a problem, you're really just kind of boiling up all the, the frustration that you have as a leader. Like oh, they didn't do this or they disrespected me in some way or they didn't follow instructions or, you know, whatever it is. And, and you're act, actually acting pretty emotionally. And the first thing you got to do, like the first step of everything is like, just stop, calm yourself, get really clear and concise about what the problem is. And then a after you're at that point, then you can kind of walk through a process of having different kinds of uncomfortable conversations with people. So the, the first one, the first uncomfortable conversation I call first contact. So first contact is the uncomfortable conversation you have with somebody where you're addressing the maladaptive or the unwelcome behavior, like for the first time, right? It's also the hardest of all of the uncomfortable conversations because you're like broaching that elephant in the room, you know, and it, and it can be really uncomfortable. Once you have that first, first uncomfortable conversation with people, you then want to walk into a pattern of coaching. So, you know, you've identified the problem in that first contact conversation. You've probably identified some action steps of what needs to happen. Can we make it more real? Yeah. You can fire me. All right. Oh, so oh, my, okay. Here we go. My, All right. my performance, I'm a leader of okay. your team. Oh, okay. Uh, that so would be great. Product. Right? <laughs> Is that an option? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a product and all, my performance has dropped. I started out strong. Right. We're three months into it. Right. Had good references, but my performance has dropped. Right. Okay. Well, uh, can we make it even more real? Yeah. Like make it real circumstantial. Okay. Okay. Let's say that you're a leader on my team and you have an, a, a, a team member that's not performing. Okay. Well, and you came to me recently and said, I feel like I need to go put this guy on a 90 day plan. Right. So you've now put him on a 90 day plan. And I got an email from this person who's on a 90 day plan last night that they are 50 days into their 90 day plan and you've not checked in with them. You've not given them any coaching other than have them sign some sort of document that says, Hey, this is the behavior change you got to have. You're kind of ignoring them. So I got to sit down with you and, and, and say, Oh my goodness. I knew you were doing this 90 day plan. I knew you were walking into some disciplinary action with, with a team member and, and you were letting them know like, Hey, some things have got to change, but I don't really feel like you're holding up your end of the bargain as a leader. You're either intentionally or unintentionally participating in like leadership neglect and your neglect of this team member is going to cause this team member to lose their job. And I mean, that, that would be a pretty on point way to describe the problem. Yeah. And again, we got a template for all this. You know, the first thing that I like to tell people is, you know, if, you, if this were a real scenario, but between you and I, and, you know, I call you into my office, 
you know, there's a power dynamic there. You, you've got to acknowledge the power dynamic. So the first thing I, rec- and you know, when the power dynamic happens, people aren't thinking logically, right? Like they, they, their thinking moves back to their limbic system. They're in f- uh, fight or flight. So the first thing you got to do when you're having an uncomfortable conversation with people is you got to get them out of the limbic system. You got to get them up to their prefrontal cortex where they're actually thinking, right? Logically. And so when somebody comes into my office, I don't make small talk. I don't ask them about their their weird pets or their kids or their spouse or anything like that. Within five seconds of somebody sitting down in my office to have an uncomfortable conversation, I, I let them know two things. I let them know, hey, this is going to be an uncomfortable conversation. And don't worry, nobody's losing their job today. Within five seconds, I've kind of set the tone with the person and I've addressed the elephant in the room. And then, you know, what, once you've, you've gotten that out of the way on the front end, then you can move into talking about like the severity and the impact of the situation, stating the problem, you know, and then and getting through some conversation about the issue. Okay, I so, like that. So that's the first contact okay. conversation. Once you move past that first contact conversation, now we're going to a, into a coaching pattern with someone, you know, so I would probably say toward the end of that first contact conversation, well, hey, let's get together again tomorrow. I, I want to I wanna help give you some coaching. And what I tell people about coaching is, hey, coaching is going to go really well if you do two things. One, you've got to actually apply the coaching that I'm giving you. And two, you have to share my urgency around how important this is to, to, to fix, right? And if you're really clear with people and give them, give them that level of clarity, like, hey, this is going to work out. Like this coaching is going to go great, if you apply my coaching and share my urgency, you have now set the rails on the coaching conversations you're having with people. And so you're able to come back in your second coaching conversation or your third coaching conversation. And you're able to, to ask them like, how well do you think you're applying my coaching? And you know, how effectively do you think you're sharing my urgency? You actually compare some notes. And the other thing I'll do in coaching conversations too, is bring in the feedback of other leaders. So let's say there are a couple of other leaders that are working closely around you, and they're also aware of the situation where you're kind of unintentionally flubbing this guy's 90-day performance plan, okay. right? I would probably reach out to some of those leaders that work closely with you and, and, and say, hey, are you noticing Joel spending a lot more time with this team member? Are you noticing Joel coach this person? Are you noticing Joel giving this person a disproportional amount of his attention And do you see the person benefiting from it? And, uh, you know, I I reach out to some other leaders that work around you and I'd ask them to kind of score you on it, like one to five. Are you doing those things? Are you, and and are you sharing the urgency? Is this just conversationally or is there an actual like document? No, there's actually, I I can include that in the, in the download. Yeah, there's a, there's a real format that I use. Oh, cool. And then I bring that into the conversation with you too, because if, if you're not careful in an uncomfortable conversation situation, it's really easy for the conversations to become unnecessarily adversarial. Oh yeah. My role is to be a coach to you. My, uh, you know, so I, I tell people be a coach, not a cop. My role is not to be law enforcement. My, my job is literally to be on your side of the table, trying to help you through this problem. Like the thing that should be the adversary to you is the problem, not me. So my job is to come alongside you, coach you. So we can get rid of the problem and we can continue to walk forward together. But too many leaders, when they get into that first contact conversation or that coaching conversation, 
put themselves unknowingly in an adversarial situation with the other other person. So part of staying out of that adversarial pattern is bringing in feedback from other leaders, because if the only feedback you're getting is just from me, it just sets us up for an adversarial situation. Right. So that, do you want me to go through all five? I could just rip through them. Yeah, you, you want. can rip through them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. The first kind of uncomfortable conversation is a first contact conversation. Second kind is a coaching conversation. And you can have, you know, we, you and I could have one coaching conversation and it go fantastic. And that's it. We just need one and then we're done. Or we might need two or three. I'll tell you what I don't usually do. I'm not going to do four or five or six coaching conversations yeah. with somebody. If, if we're two or three into it and the person's not, you know, sharing my urgency and, you know, doing their work to, to solve the problem, we're going to move beyond coaching the, the next level. And this is a really weird phraseology that we use at Ramsey that you're not going to hear anywhere else. And I got to explain it the moment I say it, because you're going to be like, what is that? We call it an emotional firing. And it sounds really harsh, but it's actually an, a kind of an act of mercy, honestly. What an emotional firing is, is a conversation with a team member where you say, hey, we've been doing this coaching and you're not, you're not applying my coaching. You're not sharing my urgency. This is not going well. And so I need you to make a choice. I need you to make a choice as to whether you want to keep on fighting to save this situation or whether you're ready to tap out and surrender and maybe move along your, your next job. So the, the goal of the emotional firing is to cause someone to have the emotions of a termination without experiencing the material consequences of the termination. And that can sound harsh, but what it's going to do is it's going to make real for you the situation that you're in. So let, let's say, again, this fictitious situation where you've had somebody on a 90-day plan and you haven't been paying adequate attention to that team member and, and they're suffering because of your you know, leadership neglect. And I've been coaching you through it and you're not spending more time with that team member and you're not investing into that person and you're not coaching them. Well, when it would come time for that emotional firing conversation, I'd, I'd say like, Joel, up to this point, you know, we've, we've now had three or four conversations about this. And, and I've told you, I'm going to stay your steadfast advocate as long as you do two things, as, as long as you're uh, taking and applying my coaching and you're, and you're sharing my urgency. And, and not only just me, but a couple of the leaders around you have noticed that you are not applying the coaching and you are not sharing the urgency. So I, I think we've just reached a place where you got to make some tough decisions. And I'll be honest until you got two options. One is you continue to run down this path and you fight for your job and you make this work. Or the second is you decide to punch the eject button and say like, all right, this isn't for me. But I want to be really honest with you. And I want to tell you, if after three coaching sessions, you've made this little progress, I just want to be honest with, with you and tell you like, I don't think this is going to work. I have a low level of confidence that in a fourth or fifth coaching conversation that you're going to make the forward progress that we need to save this. So I, I really want you to think about that. Uh, you know, I want you to leave the office early today. I want you to go home and I want you to think about this. I want you to talk to your wife about it. And I want us to get together first thing tomorrow morning. And I want you to tell me, do, do you want to fight, you know, continue to fight for your job and try to save it? Uh, or, or is it time to tap out? And usually at this point, if there's some severance on the table, uh, I'll offer it and say, you know, if you decide to tap out, we'll, you know, strike you a check for, you know, whatever that amount of money is to kind of ease your transition to your next thing. 
So that emotional firing is actually a really handy tool. Most people skip it. They just go from coaching, coaching, coaching to you're fired. So if they come back tomorrow and they say, uh, no, I still want to fight for my job. What I'll say to them is, well, I shared with you yesterday, I think the odds are pretty low that this is going to work, but I respect the fact that you want to fight for your job. I just need to tell you that I've written a 90-day performance plan for you, and it's, I already have it printed, and I hand it to them, and say, I just want you to understand that this 90-day performance plan, there's two things you need to know. There is zero wiggle room on this plan. If you get 95% through this plan, 95% is not enough. It has got to be 100%. And by the way, on day 91 or on day 2091, after this performance plan is over, if you fall back into these same behaviors that we're addressing now, it's going to be a no warning termination situation. And I'll, I'll have them, you know, read through that performance plan and make sure that they, you know, feel good about it. If they don't feel good about it and they want to start negotiating, that's generally where I roll back and say, hey, listen, this is not a negotiation situation. Like if, if you're not comfortable with this plan, that's you telling me that you want to hit the eject button. So that, that is the fourth type of uncomfortable conversation is the 90-day plan. So we got the first contact, we've got the coaching, we've got the emotional firing, and then we've got the 90-day performance plan or whatever the length of the performance plan is you do. Right. And if for whatever reason the performance plan doesn't go well, then you move into a termination. Is that performance plan, is it structured in a way that like it doesn't require an enormous amount of work for you to follow up with them? Like in that plan, are they responsible for making changes and communicating them to you? Or are you hunting people down for this? Or what's going on in that 90-day Well, again, they need to take the coaching and share the urgency. So part of sharing the urgency means they need to be in good contact with me. They can't hide from me. But honestly, I am still in coaching mode. I have not written this person off. Okay. Because remember, as leaders, we don't have groups of people that are subservient to us. Our job as leaders is to serve those people. And even when we're in an awkward and uncomfortable situation with a team member that might not be doing everything right, that does not relinquish me from my requirement to serve them well. So I will apply more attention to a situation. I'll be checking in with people. I'll be having lunches with them. A lot of people will create distance during those performance plans because they feel like it's so awkward. And what I like to tell leaders is it will only get awkward if you make it awkward. I want somebody to feel if they're going through a performance plan or they're going through coaching or any kind of thing, I want them to feel literally like I am right next to them fighting alongside trying to save this. Like I, I want people to know that if in the unfortunate event that I have to fire you like Anne's husband that they are 100% confident that I've done everything humanly possible to save the situation. So yeah, there is responsibility on their part, but it is not the person on the 90-day plan's job to drive the situation. It is still my job to drive the situation. You are very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my, my goal is not to be nice. My goal is to be tough but fair. You know, when, when I first started doing this leadership thing 15 years ago, I was leading really small teams. I'm in a situation now where I lead 250 people, you know, and that, that team is just growing all the time. You know, it, it takes a lot of emotional maturing as a person moving from a team of five people to a, a team of 255 people. The growth that you have to go through as a leader is enormous. And 
But one of the biggest aspects of growth that I think that you go through is you really start to develop a positive association with discomfort, which I know sounds like a really weird thing. But, you know, when I was a younger leader, man, discomfort was just, you know, it it would just wreck me, right? If I had to have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody or I had to confront someone or, you know, any kind of conflict was really, really hard for me. But I got some great mentorship myself. I remember when it was, it was 16 years ago, actually. I had somebody say to me, anything that you have the tendency to avoid needs to become the first and only priority to you. And that was incredibly powerful advice. It also took me probably five years to even be able to partially start to implement that because it requires so much emotional fortitude to get to a place that when everything inside your physiology says, oh gosh, this is uncomfortable, I don't want to do it. And you can train yourself to react to making the thing you desperately want to avoid the number one thing that you're going to do and you are going to be relentless until it is done. You know, when you, when you develop that skill as a leader and it takes a long time. And if I'm really honest, you know, I'm only 95% there. You know, I mean, I'm, uh, maybe one day I'll get to 100%, but that still feels like pretty far away. You know, when you can embrace discomfort, when you can get comfortable being uncomfortable, it is a really powerful situation to be in as a leader because things just don't scare you the same way anymore because you, you have history that tells you that you will survive. So my goal is not to be nice. My goal is to be tough, but fair. You know, I don't enjoy having uncomfortable conversations with people. I don't relish it. It's not a power thing for me. I still dislike it, but I've just learned that the thing that separates an okay leader from a great leader is somebody who is willing to do the thing that they don't want to do, you know? Yes. It's discipline. It's discipline. And I really think that there is an epidemic in modern leadership (sighs) when it comes to people not like the reason why we, we have these leadership jobs is because we should have the integrity to do the right thing, even when it's hard. And unfortunately I see with a lot of leaders nowadays, they're not willing to do the thing of integrity that the situation demands and it is obvious that it needs to happen, but they allow their discomfort to put their hands on the steering wheel and, and, and steer, you know, steer the boat or ship or car, whatever analogy you want to use in a different direction, you know, and, you know, relevant to this audience, right? The myth that's out there is that if you're a technical leader, if you're an engineering leader, it's somehow okay to be bad at people stuff. And let me just set the record straight on that, it is absolutely a lie. And if you aspire to be a great leader in technology, you almost have to be better at people stuff than the next guy or the, ne- the next lady because the, the people that we lead aren't always necessarily the most emotionally aware people. And so we oftentimes have to go a further distance in coaching people and helping people, uh, helping them mature as, you know, individual contributors. So in a lot of ways, we almost have to be better at it than the next cat that's out there, you know? Is it, my brain's hung up on a, a couple things oh, I want to yeah. address. When you were first talking about, you know, the uncomfortable conversations and the distance and all of that, 
like the five parts, I thought you were going to go like firing, body odor. Yeah, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Conversations. Mm-hmm. But then we talked a lot about like letting people go, and it seems like this framework can be applied to the other subjects, right? Mm-hmm. But I felt like it was really long. Is there ever times when it's not that entire process of coaching and then coaching oh, again? Absolutely. And then, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you have situations where, somebody's safety has been violated. If you have somebody who has been legitimately abused or somebody has abused their power in a really kind of disgusting way, I have no problem with escorting somebody's butt straight into the parking lot instantly. But those are typically situations where, and fortunately because of where I work, I don't have to deal with that garbage all that often, but I have in past jobs. Those are situations where you are either in the middle of a situation or skirting awfully close to something that could probably result in a civil suit or we're talking about serious, serious stuff. And I don't mean like somebody suing my company. I mean like something that happened between two people that's going to cause a divorce or is going to cause a, you know, there are situations where things can definitely be sped up and be instant. But I would put those in the bucket of what I would refer to as moral turpitude. If people get into, you know, really dicey territory, I don't need to coach somebody through sexual harassment. Right. You sexually harass somebody, your butt's gone instantly on my team, you know? But if if somebody's having more of what I'd call like behavioral skill problem, you know, skill, uh, interpersonal skill problems. Got it. Then, yeah, I'm going to put a bunch of time in. Yeah. Again, as leaders, we, we owe them that. Now, if somebody's like, they just started, like it's their fifth day on the job and they're doing all kinds of weird stuff, okay, maybe not. But if somebody's been on the job for five years or 10 years, I owe it to them. For sure. To work it through with them, yeah. Uh, Let's take a a moment to talk about Ramsey, the company. Right, yeah. Recruiting is one of the reasons why a lot of people come on the show. Yeah. There's a lot of... I'm on the show because I like you, that's it. (laughs) I want to give a plug for Ramsey Solutions. And the reason why I want to do this is because I came and I got to visit the buildings in person and see the studios and you gave me a tour and you had lunch with me and you had that, the thing that you really liked a lot and the guy like knew your order and you were like the mayor, the Philly cheesesteak. Yes. So the environment was unbelievable. Yeah. Incredibly welcoming. Yeah. You could see the joy on people's faces. Yeah the amenities just blew me away, right? And I remember having a conversation with my wife after I got home and I said, man, I've gotten to visit so many companies and experience so many teams and talk to so many people. And I go, that is like one of the only places I think I would ever want to work if I wasn't an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because it just felt like there were so many great people there and they were all lined, working together towards a goal. It was a great atmosphere and just everything about it was awesome. So, And that's what happened to me. I am a lifelong entrepreneur. Ramsey is actually the first full-time job I've ever had. Ramsey, slowly over a period of a couple of years, became my company's biggest customer. And as I got to know Dave and I got to know the operating board and a lot of key leaders at the company, I fell in love with the place. And uh, I ended up selling my company to take a full-time job at Ramsey, which a lot of my friends were like, you're crazy. But best decision I ever made. That was five years ago. Best decision I ever made. And are you guys hiring right now in technology? Oh, yeah. 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 I've got a hundred open developer roles. Where do people find that? Yeah, RamseySolutions.com. Yeah, we got got all of our, our jobs listed there. 
always hiring great engineers, always hiring great product managers, always hiring great project managers, product designers. So you want me to tell you a little bit, yeah. everybody a little bit about the company? So the Ramsey Solutions, so the, the background of the company is in 1988, our CEO went through a devastating set of financial circumstances, ended up causing him to go into bankruptcy. He was a young entrepreneur in his 20s, and he had kind of amassed a small real estate empire. And he did it the way that people are still doing it today, which is he debt financed the purchase of a whole bunch of buildings. And the bank that he was working with got purchased by a bigger bank. And when that new bank was review, reviewing their books, they said, who's this 26-year-old guy that's got like, you know, three, $4 million of debt? This seems pretty risky. So they called his loans, which caused a multi-year domino effect of just financial tragedy. And that created, an, and, you know, our founder's name is Dave Ramsey. You might find that name familiar. That created a real awareness on Dave's part about how toxic debt can be to your life. And so as bad as that situation was for he and his family, as after he kind of dug himself out of that hole, he decided he wanted to start helping other people that, that had gone through the same thing, that were in financial tragedy and wanted to not only help people get out of that financial tragedy, but hopefully if he did his job right, like help other people from ever getting into it. So that birthed a company called Lampo, which eventually became Ramsey Solutions as we are today. So now, now 25 years, 30 years later, post that situation with Dave, you know, we use digital product and terrestrial radio and book publishing and one-on-one -on -one coaching and uh, live events. You know, we're a multidiscipline company that uses all those different approaches. We, we reach about 25, uh, 20, 25 million people a week to kind of tell the story of not only just how to get out of debt, but how to stay out of debt and, and build a future of financial freedom, you know? So that's what the company's all about. It's fantastic. You know, it's, it's one of the few places I'll just speak for myself, you know, as a old crusty software engineer, it's the first job I've ever had in my life where I get to go to work every day and hear endless stories of the life change that our customers have helped create for themselves by using the products that we make and not just change for themselves, but changes for their kids. It's, it's generational change. You know, when people learn how to get detached from the, the toxic debt culture that we live in, in America and learn to live life on their own terms, beautiful things happen in relationships and families and marriages that last generations. So it's a really amazing, fulfilling place to work. And, you know, you, you mentioned it having visited, you can tell that on people's faces. Oh yeah. You know, we're not doing like just engineering work for the sake of engineering work. We're doing engineering work because we know it's changing people's lives. And that, that's a lot of fun. Yes. Back to the Philly cheesesteak. When we were standing in line, yeah. an engineer or two walked up to you and you're just talking with them and you introduced me and I went to one of my defaults, which is, Hey, what language do you program in? And he goes, whatever language is needed to solve the problem. And yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> that is great. I was like, yeah. that, that is the perfect, that is the answer. Yeah. So I was sold at that point. Yeah. yeah. We're very, very lucky. I probably don't tell him enough how honored I am to get to work through a work around 250 software folks that are so aligned in terms of the mission of, of helping change people's lives. It's, it's a different breed. You know, we, we like to joke and say it's, it's almost like a rare air that we get to breathe at, at Ramsey. When you have people that genuinely care about the things that they're doing, it creates an environment that, that you can't manufacture. You know, it's, it's passion.
people want to see, I know you have popular consumer apps in the store to yeah. help you manage your money and to, you have a couple of them, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. What's the one that helps you manage your money? I think you can like hook your bank accounts to it and look at the percentage of your spend. And- yeah. So we, we have a, a subscription that we offer the public called Ramsey plus and Ramsey plus really has two primary products in it. The first is an education product. It's a, it's a series of different videos that really helps you understand kind of the Ramsey way to manage money. So that's more of the education piece. And once you understand the philosophy of how we, we teach people to, to do money, then you need, you need a tool that's going to walk with you every day, you know, to make sure that you kind of carry out the plan. And we have a, a tool that's included in Ramsey plus called every dollar, that's what which is, is uh, I, I don't know what it is now in the app store. It's one of the top apps in the app store for budgeting. But I think probably at this point, we've, we've got pretty close to about 15 million users. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, you know, uh, a large scale app. So yeah, every dollar is a budgeting app. Uh, helps you do what we call a zero-based budget, which is uh, most budgeting happens in the rears, right? You make all your bad money decisions and then you try to reconcile it <laughs> at the end. Yeah. What every dollar is really there to do is help you to get a plan for every dollar of your income and then help you execute that plan as you've designed it, you know, so it's, it is a, it's a unique budgeting app in that it kind of carries a different philosophy with it than, than mint or a lot of other, you know, kind of, uh, uh, even better known, you know, budgeting apps. Ramsey's created a culture around being out of debt. Yes. And it's on their radio show that airs constantly. It's within all their teams and there's now their sub shows. Like I got to have Ken Coleman on like yeah. a week or two ago. Right we got really off topic and oh, I yeah. just had him coach me through some stuff from the past. And so okay. it just got really raw and real uh, yeah. fast. Um, but he was a great human being. Oh, Ken's a great guy. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's in the culture and so people can, you know, you can start with the app or I, I honestly heard about through church. That was my first exposure yeah. to the, it, like the church provided that financial training to people. Right. So that was my first exposure to it. That was years ago. You guys right. have been doing this for a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw the, the technology and I had downloaded every dollar and my wife and I, we've been together for eight years and I was doing it really well myself. And then I sort of got her into it right. as well. So I don't hear that conversation a lot about this, this your spouse and you coming together yeah. like financially. And yeah, the, the pop culture around money nowadays, there is an endless list of things that people have accepted as normal, even in their marriages around money that from our perspective, you know, just, just isn't great. A lot of couples don't do money together. That is also the reason why the number one reason for divorce in America is money. Really? Yeah. And money fights, money arguments, misalignment around that. You know, we're, we're in the money business, but we're really in the marriage business is like what we like to say around Ramsey. The vast majority of customer feedback that we get is, man, I found you guys because I was desperate about my money. And now I have a different marriage than when I started. And that's, that's just amazing to hear, you know. Does the Ramsey course specifically coach couples on coming? Yeah. So it, that's in the material? Yeah, it's, it's how to come together. And, you know, one of the things that we say is, you know, in, in every relationship, there's a nerd and a free spirit when it comes to money. Yeah. And you got to figure out who you are. I'm the nerd. You're, you're the nerd. I'm the nerd. You're the nerd. Yeah. I'm the free spirit. Yeah. My wife is the nerd. And so what, what you got to do is you got to figure out like, oh, okay, well, you know, what's, what's that dynamic there in, in your marriage? 
how can the nerd help the free spirit and how can the free spirit help the nerd? You know, cause everybody brings something that's, you know, valuable to the table. It's not that the nerd is superior to the free spirit. Oh, know? I used to be the free spirit and then yeah. I lost all my money. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so that'll I do it. The nerd. That'll, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was before before my wife. Yeah, right. I lost, made money, lost a bunch of money, had some debt. Then I was like, "This sucks." Yeah. <laughs> and then I just, I for the past 10, 15 years, I've had one credit card with a five hundred dollar limit, and I buy like gas on it to keep it active. Yeah. And other than that, like if I can't, if I don't have the cash for it, I can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. You know, our advice tends to be pretty extreme. Oh yeah. You know. And a lot of people are like, you know, you know, how do you live in a world without a credit score? Like, you know, my, my wife has a zero credit score right now. Oh, really? Or actually it's a, a non-existent credit score. Mine is plummeting in that direction because it's only been until recent years that I've, you, you know, like even if you're not living a credit card lifestyle, you can still have a mortgage. You can still have other things that'll kind of maintain your credit score. Yeah. But it's funny because a lot of the folks that work at Ramsey that have been working the plan where you end up at the end is you get a bunch of millionaires. Yeah. Which is really strange to say. A lot of people think the American dream is dead and it is far from dead. You can become a millionaire in America without inheriting a dime from anyone. You know, in You've fact, got those research statistics, right? Yeah, we have all, we did the largest research study of millionaires that's ever been conducted. And we found out that it is more likely that the average millionaire in America has not inherited a dime from anyone. And believe it or not, two of the most common... Well, and this would be great for this audience, but two of the most common careers for people who retire millionaires are school teachers and engineers. Really? Yeah. I have more millionaires on my team than I could ever really talk about publicly. And it's not because these folks are making ginormous salaries. I mean, they make good money as engineers do, but it's not what you make, it's what you keep. We've seen some really amazing amazing things. In fact, that's one of the hardest things for me is holding on to senior engineers because I literally have guys on my team who are 45 years old retiring. Yeah. And and a lot of people who might be listening to this might be 45 and don't even know if they're going to be able to retire. The good news is, yes, you can. <laughs> you still can. It's not too late. Oh yeah. But our advice tends to be intense. But it, if you do it, it will work. A good time to start was for me. <laughs> When you're at the bottom and you have nothing, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're just like broke and you dirt poor. And then I just made the decision, like, I never want to be in this spot again. Yeah. And so as I go up, I'm never going to, like, I will always consider, and I'm, I, I don't know if I'm more extreme than the Ramsey solution. I consider 50% of my income, my income. Yeah. And so I do all my, so I save 50%. Yeah. And then I have, I live off 50%. And then in that 50%, I'm still doing the savings and everything like that. Yeah. And I just have done that over and over and over. And people will say, okay, well, it's a lot easier when you're making a lot of money. And when yeah. you're at the, it's like, yeah, but I started at zero. Right. And like, I had that mentality at zero. Yeah. And that's how I got a little bit farther ahead. And then I could invest more in myself and then I could try more risky things. And then I could just keep that yeah. going. Yeah. Probably the journey for you is a little different than most people. Cause when you start at zero, it's one thing. Most people start don't start at zero. They started a giant negative number. So our advice typically is geared mostly toward people that are like overwhelmed or maybe even drowning in consumer debt. Like, how do you dig out of that hole? You know, so our advice is a little bit more geared to that, but I, I think that's an awesome strategy that you use. I, I do something 
approximately similar. Yeah. You know, now that I'm in the phase of life that I am now, you know, it, it's just, it's just really fun to see the lives that people get to live when money no longer has to be the, the, the biggest quantity. And the thing that we love to talk about is with where I am in, in my life, kind of similar situation to you, I started living out a lot of these principles long before I ever made really any significant amount of money. You know, I get to live a life now that gets, that gets focused on generosity, not trying to figure out how I'm going to, you know, get an interest payment to city Carter chase, you know, you know, what's in my wallet money, money is what <laughs> my, is in my wallet. Nobody ever retired on airline miles. You know, the tricks that debt companies have managed to fool us into to get us addicted to their products is, is gross. You know, it, it's, it's a wonderful life being able to get to focus on, you know, I've, I've got a 15 year old son. He's, he's never had to live a life of debt. He's never seen that. He's never seen his parents live that fortunately, although there was definitely a time where that was a big part of our lives. But what he has gotten to see is how you live a life that's debt free and how you can live with enormous generosity to the people in our world who need it the most. And that is an, it's an incredible gift to be able to give a, a child that, you know, to, to teach him that, you What's know, that, that way of living. You have some sort of routine that you do with your son where you go on this website and you make some investments to. Yeah. Yeah. I went on the website. What's it called? Kiva. Kiva. I went on the website. You don't really get a return. No, you don't. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I was all excited setting up my no. account. I was like, where's the returns? I couldn't find on the listing page. I was like, where's the percent of return? There's, yeah. there's none. You pay the fee yeah. to, to help them lend the money. Yeah, yeah. There are two nonprofits that I just love, love dearly. Kiva and Charity Water. You know, Kiva is a really interesting uh, model in that when you, you're basically funding small business loans for people in, in early developing nations, you know, they pay those loans back, but when they pay the loan back, it doesn't come back to my pocketbook. It kind of comes back to my account balance and you do that for years and you're not funding like somebody's sewing machine or funding small projects anymore. You're at a point where it's like, let's go build a building in Fiji you know, because that, that those contributions you make over the years kind of roll over on each other and those, and it gets bigger and bigger. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Kiva and charity water too, which they're, they're an amazing organization. Scott Harrison, who's become a friend is their CEO and their whole model is 100% of every dollar that people give them go toward making, uh, building wells in communities around the world that, um, th they can't make any other forward economic progress until they actually have clean drinking water, right? It's solving the problem that unlocks other opportunity. And so, you know, the way that Scott funds the operations of the organization is through, you know, donations from high net wealth individuals to keep everybody's salaries paid. But for the normal guy, you know, that's, that's making given donations, 15 to bucks, given 15 bucks, bucks yeah. 15 bucks hits the ground in Kenya yeah, or wherever, you know, uh, that directed giving goes to. It's awesome. There are amazing things out there. Dude, this is so great. What else do we need to talk about? What other topics do you have on your mind? You know, I, I think I'm, I'm like any other leader. Leadership's always on my mind. You know, where you grow next, you know, what the hardest problems are in front of you. Uncomfortable conversations is something that I've enjoyed talking about for the last couple of years. I, I think the, the latest kick that I've been on is really the topic of accountability. Because I think accountability is also one of those skills 
that as leaders, we have to model for other people, but it hasn't necessarily been modeled very well for us. At least that's, you know, that's my story. And what does healthy accountability look like? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, we could sit here for hours. You know, for a lot of people, accountability is scary because I think a lot of leaders fear misusing their authority and, and hurting people. So accountability is not a weapon. It's actually a tool to serve people, but it can accidentally get used as a weapon if, if, if you don't have its twin brother, which is expectations. So if you really want to get great at accountability, you have to know where to put your energy. In my experience, you got to put 99% of your energy on expectations, getting really great at setting expectations with people. And if you do a really great job, you master setting expectations, then accountability is really easy to do. Because all you have to do at that point is just talk to people about what you've already talked to them about, the expectations, you know. So yeah, that's we could easily fill up another episode on that topic. Well, that's what we'll do next time then. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.